You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't on the Savage Lovecast. So last Friday, if you were online, if you were on Twitter or visiting any news blogs, you heard about this story, this post at Gawker. Gawker did a long post about a particular brand of humanity that I hadn't ever heard branded in this way, a C-suite executive at Condé Nast who is a married man and a father of three kids, uh, married to a woman. We have to clarify those things these days. Married to a woman who booked a gay male prostitute, escort, uh, porn star, and – slightly deranged sounding conspiracy theorist as it all shook out on Friday afternoon to join him in Chicago for a weekend. And he's going to pay him $2,500 to come have sex with him in Chicago. So the porn star managed to figure out who the executive was. And it turned out he was the brother of a former Obama administration official. And I'm not going to use any names because I don't want to participate or help out this guy any further, but the porn star figured out who he was and threatened to out the executive if the executive didn't use his political connections to the Obama administration to assist the porn star in a dispute with the porn star's former landlord, it's complicated. The executive, and we know this because we all got to read all of their exchanges, the executive gently refused, paid the porn star his full weekend $2,500 fee, and canceled the booking. And the porn star, who had been threatening to blackmail the executive to go public with this information about him – if he didn't do what he was demanding, the porn star turned it all over to Gawker. Gawker published it all, sort of helping the porn star to make good on his blackmail threat. There were howls of protest, left, right, and center. This is rare. The entire interwebs was in agreement. Uh, professional sex workers like Mistress Matisse was outraged by the Gawker post. Everybody at Reason.com and the National Review and Talking Points Memo all over the internet, Huffington Post, everybody had something to be outraged about, including the gay baiting and gay shaming that seemed to be bundled into this. Gawker's uh, editor-in-chief defended the post with this tweet. Given the chance, Gawker will always report on married C-suite executives of major media companies fucking around on their wives. All righty. Friday, uh, I quickly tweeted out a reaction to that rationalization for this post. Problem with Gawker's thinking? We don't know if this C-suite executive was fucking around on his wife. Some marriages are open. Some husbands are bi. Some wives allow for outside contact if husband makes an effort to be discreet. And even if this guy was fucking around on his wife, unless the guy is a moralizing public scold and it proves political hypocrisy, this is not news. But Glenn Greenwald, writing on The Intercept, I think he said it best. What's significant to me is the unstated premise of Reed's claim, wrote Greenwald, that the wife of this CFO is a victim. Reed is posing as her chivalrous defender. He only published this article to avenge the wrong done to her. There's even the strangely sexist formulation to his vow. Gawker, he declares, will always report on married executives of major media companies fucking around on their wives. What about when the cheating executives are women and the spouse is a man? He doesn't say. His self-proclaimed mission is to protect this little lady from the harm that has been inflicted on her. This is far and away the most common justification cited for sniffing around in the private sexual lives of people. We're just upset for the victim's spouse. 
But even if one wants to pretend, I'm just going to keep reading Greenwald because it's so good. But even if one wants to pretend that the sentiment is genuine, the logical flaw is glaring and obvious. Max Reed and everybody else at Gawker has absolutely no idea what this CFO's wife knows about what her husband does, nor does he have any idea what agreement or arrangement they have governing their marriage, nor should he know because it's none of his business. Long-time marriage, Glenn goes on. I'm sorry, I'm reading three paragraphs. I just have to. Long-time marriage, Glenn goes on. Between two complex adults is a very complicated dynamic to navigate. People invent all sorts of ways to manage that. It's, of course, possible that the CFO's wife thought she was in a rigid, lifelong monogamous relationship with a purely heterosexual male and is shocked and betrayed to learn otherwise. But it is also very possible that she was well aware that he isn't any of those things and the spousal agreement between them permits this flexibility on one or both of their parts. All right. So that was Friday. Glenn wrote that on Friday and everybody left, right and center was in violent agreement with Glenn Greenwald. And that doesn't happen very often. He's a great writer and a very controversial writer. And it's really rare when Glenn Greenwald puts up a massive post and the whole world is like right on. But everybody's like, right on, what Gawker did, outing this nobody was wrong, marriage is complicated, there may not have been any victims here other than the guy who was outed, and even if the wife in this case was being victimized by her husband's conduct, it's still nobody else's business. Which brings us to the big adultery news breaking this morning as I sit down to record the intro to this week's Lovecast. This from Business Insider, extramarital affair website Ashley Madison has been hacked and attackers are threatening to leak data online. So these hackers uh, found an entry point through the back door somehow into Ashley Madison's data after Ashley Madison bragged that its data was the most secure site on the internet, totally secure, and hackers found their way in and got the personal information, contact information, sexual fantasies, Presumably the uh, chats that people had conducted on the site of their 37 million users and they're threatening to put it all online, to dump it all online and expose these 37 million people. And this news about Ashley Madison and the hack is generating a lot of outrage this morning. But the outrage isn't directed at the hackers who are threatening to out not just one guy for cheating on his spouse but 37 million people who may have cheated on their spouses or may have merely contemplated cheating on their spouses long enough to create an account at Ashley Madison. This time, when we're talking about the 37 million, people are furious with the cheaters, not the outers. A few tweets. No one should have their personal information released without their consent, but you can't help but laugh. Hashtag Ashley Madison. An act of karma at Ashley Madison. How about stay single or be in an open relationship? Don't promote cheating. Finding it extremely difficult to feel any compassion for Ashley Madison users. I'm not cherry picking. That is the tenor of the entire Twitter feed reaction to the Ashley Madison hack. One of my followers reacting to something that I tweeted where I pointed out that anyone who was outraged by what Gawker did to that one guy should be equally outraged by what hackers were doing to these 37 million people. One of my followers tweeted back, not outraged by the hackers. Partners these people are cheating on did not consent. No sympathy. Hackers suck, but so do cheaters. I don't get it. I'm a little mystified by this disconnect between the unified reaction that everyone had to Gawker on Friday, which is they were doing this terrible thing, and this support for the hackers and outing all of these maybe cheaters. 
the hackers are to be celebrated because they are coming to the defense of the victim spouses of all of these cheaters. But Gawker is to be condemned for doing basically the exact same thing. Now, I know Gawker is a news site that does journalism. And yes, they do do journalism. And that we hold journalists to a higher standard and journalists hold themselves to a higher standard than we hold a bunch of anonymous hackers. But the violation at the heart of both of these stories is exactly the same. People who may or may not have been cheating on their spouses are going to be outed. Their lives are going to be upended. Their children could be traumatized. But they're cheaters, screams the internet. Cheaters are terrible people. Cheaters deserve to be exposed. And this is the exact same internet that just three days ago was overflowing with a nuanced understanding of infidelity where a wealthy, politically connected white man was concerned. That seems like a weird and to me possibly classist disconnect. Long-term marriage – like Greenwald says, and anybody who listens to this podcast should know, is a complicated dynamic and people invent all sorts of ways to manage that complicated long-term dynamic. And yes, cheating is one of the ways people manage that dynamic. It is not ideal. It would be great if everyone who felt compelled to cheat could either negotiate an open relationship or end the one they're in now. But sometimes cheating, as I've frequently said, is the least worst option available to someone slogging through the savage love mill for the last 25 years and your calls for the last six has convinced me of this. There are a lot of people out there who have good cause to cheat men and women trapped in sexless marriages, men and women trapped in loveless marriages, men and women who have essentially been abandoned sexually and or emotionally by spouses that they aren't in a position to leave either because their spouses are economically dependent on them or vice versa or because they have children who are dependent on both partners. They just can't get out. I have an example for you. came in the mail today, this morning, as I was reading about Ashley Madison. This pops into my email. This woman has two children with special needs. She's been out of the workforce for 15 years. She's financially dependent on a husband who decided five years into their 15-year marriage that he was done with sex but he didn't want her sleeping with anyone else. The marriage, she writes, is good otherwise. She and her husband have an affectionate, low-conflict relationship. Their kids are happy and well cared for and require a ton of their attention. But the sexual deprivation is driving her out of her mind and threatening her marriage. What would you advise this woman whose letter came today to do? I would advise her to do what she needs to do to stay married and stay sane. And until this morning, I might have advised her to join Ashley Madison. You know, it's easy to see cheating as a morality play with clearly identifiable victims and victimizers. But as Esther Perel says in her terrific TED Talk video, Rethinking Infidelity, which is online and on YouTube and you should go watch it. As she says in that video, the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. Marriage is complicated. Cheating is complicated. You know what's not complicated? Outing. That executive gawker outed last week did not deserve to be outed. And the members of Ashley Madison being outed today, they don't deserve it either. All right. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old straight female calling from Washington, D.C. This question is not about me. It's about family issues. 
my sister is two years older than me and is going to marry her fiance, a lady who is wonderful and we all love her, um, in February. So she came out something like five or six years ago. No surprise to anybody. She's very uh, feminine, but she's never had an interest in boys. And we all suspected she was gay. And when she came out, it wasn't not a surprise to anyone. However, even though she's been out for a long time and has lived with women and is living with her fiance and has not expressed an interest in men for a long time, my mother refuses to kind of just accept the fact is a raving asshole about this relationship and basically talks to whoever will listen about her disappointment with my sister and how disgusted she is by this charade and how the wedding's an atrocity and she's so embarrassed. And I don't know what to do. I'm sort of stuck in the middle. I'm on my sister's side, but my sister doesn't really make it easy. Um, she herself is very selfish and self-absorbed and arrogant and uppity. So while I'm on my sister's side, she doesn't make it easy. Meanwhile, my mom, I can't station with her uh, for more than a few minutes without hearing about how disgusted she is with my sister. And I say things like, you know, have you thought about seeing a shrink or, hey, do you think you can keep that to yourself? And she'll say that she has no one else to talk to about it. And I don't know how to tell her, hey, can you just shut up and show up and keep your mouth shut at this wedding? It's pretty frustrating. It's not couched in any religious stuff. She's just a bigot and her words are really hurtful. So if you have any advice for how someone stuck in the middle can navigate this family situation, I would appreciate your thoughts. You're not obligated to talk to your mother because she has no one else to talk to about this shit. That's not a trump card that forces you to stay in the room or entertain these discussions. You should say to your mother, you have no one to talk to about this. If I'm the only one you have to talk to or have had to talk to about this, that's over and now you have no one because I am not talking to you anymore about this shit. I don't want to hear the homophobic crap. I don't want to participate in these conversations. Come to the wedding. Don't come to the wedding. I don't fucking care, but I'm not listening to this shit anymore. Let's talk about how awful True Detective is this season instead. Something like that. Lay it down once. If your mother starts in again because she's just got to vent all this hateful bullshit, get up and leave the room. She needs to vent hateful bullshit. That's what Twitter is for, it seems, these days. Or Tumblr. You aren't obligated to be her sounding board. You are not obligated. As for your sister, go to her wedding. I understand that she's a bit of a self-involved narcissist. Some people, that's a lifestyle choice. Some people, that's temporary bridal insanity. Hopefully, she will get through it and get over it. Your only obligation to your sister is to love her and support her and show up on her big day when she marries this wonderful woman. You say her fiancé is wonderful. Hopefully, her fiancé will sand the self-involved narcissistic edges off your sister in their lives together and she will make your sister into a better person. This is an easily solved problem. Go to the wedding. Tell mom you're not going to talk to her about this bullshit anymore and tell mom that she should go to the wedding too. But if not, if she can't go to the wedding without being a sourpuss, don't go to the wedding and she can nuke then her relationship with one of her children if that relationship is less important to her than her hateful homophobic bigotry. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you about weddings. 
Um, as you're well aware, gay marriage has officially been legalized in the United States. And soon after that ruling, I went to a wedding. And during the wedding, the pastor was making his speech about what marriage is and what it means. And he made a very strong point that marriage is between one man and one woman because it must be childbearing. And this seemed, at least to me, to be his way of saying that the legalization of marriage was unacceptable. Now, I realized I was in a church and those thoughts sometimes come up the territory, but regardless, um, him saying those things made me very angry. So angry, actually, that I wanted to stand up and leave right then. And I didn't stand up and leave because I didn't want to ruin their wedding. But my question to you is, should I have stood up and walked out at that point? Or would it have been wrong for me to do so? Um, or what should I do if and when I find myself in other situations like this in the future? Many, many years ago, when... Terry and I were new parents. Our son was still an infant. We went to Terry's older brother's wedding. And my husband, my husband, his older brother uh, is a fundamentalist Christian, as is his wife. And they'd only known each other for a few months and they were getting married, which I disapproved of. I was the gay guy at the fundamentalist Christian wedding disapproving of everything because I don't think people should marry uh, young even though Terry and I, very young, had a child together. We didn't get married. We didn't do anything crazy. I don't think people should marry young uh, or marry after knowing each other for just three months. But mad props to Terry's brother. Mad props. Who says that anymore except old fucks like me? But mad props to Terry's brother and his wife. They're still together. They've been together for 16, 17 years. And, you know, they've walked the walk of their values. They weren't able to conceive themselves. And they adopted a child, a relative of theirs, who was otherwise going to be cast off into the foster care system. And they stepped up. And they've been great parents. And they're lovely people. Uh, and still together. So I was wrong. But the wedding, going all the way back to the wedding, was in a fundamentalist Christian church with anti-choice literature everywhere. And you know, one man, one woman poster on the wall, I think, uh, in the hallway. And we let the family know that me in the pew, because Terry was one of the groomsmen up on the altar, that if there was anti-gay bigotry as a part of the service, that I would be up and out of that church, loudly out of that church. I wouldn't say anything, but I would not uh, hesitate to drop a few hymnals uh, and slap up a few uh, – kneelers on my way out of the pews. And so nothing happened. I, I don't know if nothing happened because we made it very clear that we were primed for something happening and we would not stay if something happened. And potentially not just I would leave with our baby, but Terry would walk off the altar. Like we just weren't going to have it. And so it didn't happen. Whether it didn't happen because it wasn't ever a part of the plan or it didn't happen because there were gay people in the room, it didn't fucking happen. I was primed to get up and go, but I was really nervous about having to do that. I didn't want to have to get up and go because it did feel, you know, you felt like you're going to be the biggest asshole in the, in the world at that moment. But I was committed to doing it because it would have been wrong. Remember, this was 17 years ago when people who felt this way were a little freer tossing that bigotry around under the assumption that everyone in this church must agree with whatever big of a thing the pastor is going to say. So what I'm about to tell you to do, I recognize is not easy because at that moment when I was waiting potentially in the pews primed to do it myself, I was a ball of tension with an infant in my arms. I share that story with you to 
put the metal in you that the next time this happens, the next time you're at a church and there is a wedding and anti-gay bigotry is incorporated into the service, that you get up and go, that you leave, that you walk out of that service. Your sitting still in the pews is assent. It's complicity in the in, in that delivering of that message. What you're saying at that moment is, yeah, yeah, we're all straight here and yeah, we all agree with you. Yeah, we all think it's terrible that those people can get married. And if anyone accuses you after having walked out of that wedding that you ruined it, that you ruined the wedding by walking out during the bigot section of the service, you turn around and say, you know who ruined the wedding? The pastor, the preacher who used this wedding as an opportunity to inject anti-gay bigotry into the ears of ever, all the assembled, to inject his anti-gay bigotry into the service. That was the ruination of this wedding. Not me refusing to tolerate that, but that. That's what you do the next time it happens. Get up and go, and that's what you say if anyone confronts you after about you ruining the wedding. It wasn't you. It was him. Hi, Dan. I have been living with my girlfriend for the last seven months. And neither of us have ever lived with a significant other before. And the way our relationship is going, she wants to be with me for the rest of our lives. She doesn't want me to propose for now, but she wants to know that she and I are on the same page. And the truth is, is that we're not. I have doubts. She's wonderful in many ways, but the thought of us spending the rest of our lives together, I don't see it. And I was listening today about how you were talking to the woman and said that it's very young and it's a very useful thing for people to be afraid of hurting the other when they break up with them. And I've expressed this fear to my girlfriend, but at the same time, I don't know what to do. We live together. We share a life together. We have friends. We have uh, a lease that we both pay. The idea of letting go of all that because somewhere down the road, I don't want us to get married, even though we're in a good relationship right now, worries me. Well, that was awkward. People leaving their phone numbers so I can call them back in case I want to ask them questions about their questions. And I called this caller back and he couldn't talk because he was sitting right next to the girlfriend that – he isn't sure he wants to marry one day. And so, of course, he couldn't talk about that in front of her. So we had to say goodbye. And I promised him I would record a little advice for him, even though I wasn't able to chat with him. All right. So on the one hand, we have what could seem like cliche male fear of intimacy issues. On the other hand, she may not be the person you want to be with for the rest of your life. And that's fine. I do think that sometimes people get cold feet or they become unsure of – their commitment to a person that is lovely and that they could actually spend the rest of their lives with because there's something about the thought of spending the rest of our lives together that really, you know, makes people think about their lives being over and no one wants their life to be over. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together in a way sort of rushes you to the end of your life. You know the end of the story, at least relationship-wise. It's this person forever. Now I'm dead. And people don't like to think about their lives ending and there's something again about that thought that it involves really rushing to the end, flipping to the last chapter of the book and reading the last page. Right? You know you're going to die with. And that sometimes I think informs that fear of intimacy thing or fear of commitment thing because you don't want to be over. And that commitment says this 
huge part of your life, you know, romantic attachments, sexual freedom, perhaps uh, new relationships, new experiences, new people, new orifices, all of it, that's over. And you're putting all your chips on this one person and you're done with all that. It's over. And that can really put the zap on people's heads and, and prevent them from committing to someone who is lovely and who they – if they could get over this fear of death shit, this over shit that they would like to be with for the rest of their life. They could be with for the rest of their life. On the other hand, sometimes we just coast along in a good enough relationship because it makes us happy enough and it pays half the rent. And we're biding our time knowing sooner or later we're getting out of this relationship because this person that we are stringing along isn't the person we want to commit to. It's a shitty thing to do. It's a shitty thing when you allow someone to assume, to make the reasonable assumption that you are open to marrying them or committing to them for life uh, when you're not. She would like you both to be on the same page. And unless you've been as honest with her as you just were with us in recording your call – she most likely assumes you are on the same page. You've probably jollied her along with some kind words about how, yeah, you could see that. Yeah, marriage in the cards one day, vague, 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 no timeline, no time frame, right? That, yeah, you see yourself as a married man one day, not not this moment, one day, and maybe you don't say married to you so that you technically have an out. You're not technically lying to her. But if you are sure that she is not who you want to be with, if you are sure she is not someone that you can commit to, if you are sure you will never be on the same page, you have to end this relationship. It is cruel. It is cruel to draw it out. It is cruel to string her along. It is cruel to allow her to continue to pay half the rent, to do half the chores, to perform half the oral sex on the assumption that you're going to commit to her. You're going to marry her. As she wishes to marry you. So you got to end it. If you know. If on the other hand you think you're just not sure yet. And maybe five more months. Six more months. But within a year or two. If somebody else is on the marriage track. You have to. Figure it the fuck out. And if you don't want to be on that track. You need to just fucking bark. Hi Dan. I am a. 25-year-old heterosexual female living in the Midwest calling because I, although am identify as straight, um, do enjoy watching girl-on-girl lesbian porn. Um, it turns me on. I, it's mostly because it's more sensual from a female's perspective. I'm you know, open to being bisexual or lesbian, but I'm not attracted to females, so I don't think that that's the case. I'm in a long-term relationship of about five years with a boyfriend that I met in college. Uh, He recently found out about my uh, being into lesbian porn um, because he, he accidentally stumbled on my search history on my iPad. He has completely shut me out. He is completely horrified. I tried to explain to him that it was because I, it turned me on nothing else. He told me he would rather that I cheated on him. He could get past that further. I know that he's not as well informed as I am partially because I listen to your podcast regularly. 
I don't know what to do. I, he's completely shut me out. He is fully prepared to end this relationship, though he's not completely sure, still parceling it out. I'm trying to give him his space. Please, <laughs> any advice that you have, I'm just completely, completely at a loss. Um, you know, I should mention that part of my uh, enjoying that type of pornography is is that you know I, I do think that there's a little bit left to be desired in our sex life. He's probably gone down on me five times in five years. It's just not something that he is extremely comfortable with. Um, I tried to explain that to him as well, and and shared with him that I. You know, I think we could be a little bit more open about what we're looking for sexually, um, but but he just was not hearing it and really won't accept my enjoyment of lesbian porn for anything other than completely disgusting, alien, and abnormal. I get this question semi-regularly, not in all the details and specifics, but somebody who calls me. And tells me or writes me at Savage Love, the column and tells me that this awful, terrible, shitty person is about to dump them. And how can I help them talk this awful, shitty person out of dumping them? I don't want your boyfriend not to dump you. I want your boyfriend to dump you for your sake because your boyfriend is an awful, shitty, insecure, bull of shit, shitty, shitty person. And you would be better off without him. Period. The end. Right. He is not a good lover. He doesn't reciprocate. He's kind of shut down sexually. He's slut shaming you. He's infantile and immature and insecure. And he just sounds like an awful person. You don't tick off his redeeming qualities. And maybe he has some, uh, if I were dating him, I, he would have to be the heir to an enormous fortune for me to put up with this shit. I don't think you should put up with this shit. And I don't think you should apologize for it. And I don't think you should let him successfully shame you. You should say to him, people are infinitely complex. Hey, here is a Reddit thread. Google straight guys who watch gay porn. Here's a Reddit thread all written by these straight guys who watch gay porn and get off on it. And there are lesbians who watch gay male porn and get off on it. And some straight women watch lesbian porn. And here are these scientific studies that show that women tend to respond to all sorts of different kinds of porn, not just porn that aligns with their sexual orientation. But porn that's just sort of like all over the place works for a lot of women. And this is the porn that works for me and I like it. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to stop watching it. And if you don't like that, if you can't accept me for who I am, if you can't embrace my sexuality, then we are not going to be good partners to one another in a relationship, in a sexual relationship. So – you found my porn. I apologize for having hidden that from you for five years. I shouldn't have hidden it from you. I should have shared it with you immediately because then we could have nipped this bullshit relationship in the bud. But here we are. If you want me, if you want to be with me, this is who I am. If you don't like that, if you can't accept me for who I am, I'm going to go find someone who can. And you know what, lady? I promise you. The world is full of straight guys who would like nothing better than to kick back and watch some dyke porn with their straight girlfriends and then eat their girlfriend's pussies for hours and hours and hours. Go find one. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the T-A-R-Ys. I am a 39-year-old woman. I am coming up on my 10th wedding anniversary with my husband. We have two kids. 
probably three years into our marriage, I had been keeping the secret that I like to watch lesbian porn. And when I finally did tell him and we did that together, it was a total turn on. And um, we've been doing it ever since. It's, only, it's the only kind of porn that we watch together. And um, I like it. It turns me on. It turns him on, but it turns me on. The problem that I have is that as soon as he found this out um, many years ago and then more increasingly lately, he, you know, wants me to try to be with a woman in real life. And that just squicks me out. I enjoy watching it. I I just can't imagine doing it in real life and don't want to do it in real life. So how do I explain to my husband or um, not that he's being unreasonably pushy, but it just seems to come up over and over again um, that fantasy and reality are very separate for me. And I have tried explaining that, but am I being unreasonable by not being more GGG when it comes to you know, maybe having a three-way or something like that. I, I obviously, if I don't want to, you're going to tell me I don't have to. But I, I've never heard you address this kind of question before. When, when I'm into something in the fantasy world, or when couples are into something, and then one of them wants to make it reality, uh, how do we address those issues? I guess it depends on why you don't want to have this three-way. Um, if what your husband wants is for you to finally have the opportunity to have sex with a woman in front of him, because he would also enjoy having that opportunity himself, and you're not actually interested in having sex with women, you enjoy watching lesbian porn, it cranks you up in some mysterious way that you can't quite articulate, but you have no desire whatsoever to be intimate with a woman, then yeah, that's going to be a problem. That three-way is not a three-way that you're going to want to have. And you need to explain to your husband that just like all those lesbians who watch gay male porn but don't want to have sex with dudes, you enjoy watching lesbian porn but you have no desire to have sex with dames. If what he actually wants though is to have a three-way with two women and he thinks he's going to get it by holding out to you the opportunity to finally get to have sex with a woman yourself but what he really wants is to have sex with two women himself – then you can talk about that. You should have a conversation with your husband about what he really wants for you to have sex with a woman, which is not something you want. So that's not something he should want for you or for him to have sex with two women. And now my question for you would be, is that something you would want for him? Is that something you would want to do with and for him? Cause that's a different conversation. So it depends on where this offer, where this pressure is coming from. Your husband's selfless, altruistic desire to help you realize your ultimate fantasy or your husband's sneaky attempt to realize his ultimate fantasy while making it appear that he's helping you realize yours. And the question then for you becomes, again, is a three-way with your husband something that you would ever be interested in doing? Particularly if you don't have to be intimate with the other woman, if it's your husband rolling around with you and another woman, and then you can have that conversation and you can set those limits that people set when they have that first nerve wracking three way, like no vaginal intercourse with her, only vaginal intercourse with me. You can reserve all those things. You can hold them back. You can be very clear about what's on the menu and what's not on the menu and very clear about no reopening the menu conversation during the three way. Even if you're both feeling it, don't reopen it because it just sets a bad precedent, makes people feel unsafe, makes people feel like they're not the priority, that they're not their partner's first concern in that three-way. And you always want to feel like that first concern. That said, if you do decide to have a three-way, the thing that throws people out of three-ways all the time, their biggest fear or the thing that they complain about is they suddenly felt left out of the action. It suddenly felt like it was a two-way and I was a third wheel. And you got to know going into three-ways that – Human beings being who they are and parts fitting together the way that they do, that unless you make 
a really aggressive effort, all three parties at all times, to include all three at all times, there will be moments, sometimes transitional, sometimes not so transitional, where it momentarily becomes a two-way. And somebody is on the outside watching. And if watching isn't something that you could enjoy, if watching doesn't feel like participating, then maybe three-ways aren't for you. Because that thing that so many people worry about, oh, suddenly I was outside of it. Suddenly they were focused on each other and not – it wasn't all equal. That thing almost always invariably happens in a three-way. It's not a bug. It's a feature. And so if you can't handle that thing happening to you in a three-way, don't have three-ways. All that said, including don't have three-ways, there is a way to control for that. But it requires honesty, directness, and – an ability to shrug it off, which is if you suddenly feel left out and you've agreed going in that you're going to – all three of you make an effort that so that no one ever feels left out, that if someone feels left out, they should just speak up and say, I'm feeling a little left out. And then the other two should immediately drag that person back into the action. But then you can't be butt sore unless your butt is so already sore. You can't be butt sore about that accidental momentary left out thing that happened to you. That you – it's on you. It's on each of you as individuals in that three-way to speak up. If no one's supposed to be left out, to say, I feel left out, and the other two then correct for that. And if they correct for it in a good-humored way and immediately and you're back in, be back in. Don't be back in and sulking and angry about it having been left out. Just be back in. Hi, Dan. My name is uh, Leonard, and I'm a gay male in Florida, and I'm going to try to keep this short, but I've got an interesting little uh, situation. I currently live in one town in Florida. However, I'm moving back to live in the same town with my parents. My parents may know that I'm gay. They may not. This is unsure at this point. I've never actually came out and told them. But I'm also a member of the leather pup community and a member of the furry community. And this presents an interesting quandary because... I'm pretty open about the fact that I'm a leather pup as well as in the uh, furry community. And I haven't been very closeted in my current town with being gay. So my main concern is, do I need to go back into the closet on all these issues? Or should I just go ahead and lay it all on the table with my my parents? You can solve the whole parents don't know you're gay or you're not sure whether your parents know you're gay or not by telling your parents you're gay. You don't have to tell them the rest of it unless you leather puppet up at church and on the street and running around town. If this is, you know, one way you express your gayness is this is a thing that you enjoy as a gay man uh, and it's sexual for you, there's no need to tell your parents necessarily that – I'm gay and this is these are the things I do that make my gay dick hard. You don't have to go there. Um there are things a parent has a right not to know like my mother said often and frequently. But you know in a world with Comic-Con, in a world with cosplay, in a world where furry conventions have been portrayed on television in CBS dramas a decade ago, that's a world where You don't necessarily have to share this info with your parents or hide it from them. It's a world where your parents might be able to wrap their head around, I have friends and we dress up in fun costumes and we go out and it's just part of the way that we enjoy ourselves. And you don't have to then say, and it makes my dick hard and 
you know, I have a handler who calls me a pup and spanks me and fucks me. You don't have to add that part. Your parents might infer it, but that's their problem. Sexual orientation, who you love, that's going to impact who you bring home, who you're with, the life you build with someone or someones. And your parents are going to find that out eventually or you're going to have to shove them out of your life entirely to keep that information from them. And people do that. People shove their parents out of their life because they're afraid their parents will reject them if they tell their parents the truth. So they reject their parents first. It's stupid. Tell your parents the truth. Let them get over it or not get over it and let them make the decision about rejection or not rejection. Make them fear yours. That's always my advice, blah, blah, blah. But the rest of it, you know, what you do with the people that you are with, the person or persons that you're with, the activities that you enjoy, there can be a public out component of that too. If you're going to run for international Mr. Leather, it's going to be a part of your public persona and your family should be comfortable with it or you should let them know about it because they're going to find out about it and better they hear it from you than read about it on the front page of the Chicago Tribune after International Mr. Leather. But you don't need to tell them every wit and twaddle of your sex life. They don't need to know that stuff. And just knowing you're gay, caller, doesn't mean they're going to then know that you're in the furry community unless your parents are too. Or that you're a leather pup unless your parents are going to pup play events and they run across you there. Social media. Are you on Twitter? Do you post a lot of pictures of yourself in pup gear and furry outfits and with your furry friends at furry conventions and social media? Then you block your parents or you let them know or you let them see it and let them ask you questions about it if they want to know more. And they probably don't and they probably won't. But tell your parents you're gay. You're a grown-up. You're an adult. It's time. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 32-year-old, mostly straight woman from the Bay Area in California. And I was talking with one of my best friends today, and we were talking about how it's important to normalize condoms. And we were wondering collectively if guys in general, find it distracting if a partner should, uh, like, kiss on them and touch on them while they're trying to put the condom on, or if they like it. Like, do they want us to kiss on them and touch on them while they're putting it on, or do they think it's distracting? Um, I guess it's case-by-case basis, but I'm wondering how most guys feel about this. Condoms, best practices. Before you're going to have sex, as you're starting when you're sure it's going to happen, uh, open the condom, leave it open, tear the packet open already so that when your hands are all greasy or luby or spitty or vaginal secretion-y, you're not struggling with the foil packet trying to open it. It's easily accessed the condom. Put it on a bit before penetration. Don't Put the condom on. Don't roll a cold condom onto your dick immediately before penetration because it will make the loss of sensation feel that much more acute. And as you're putting the condom on, and some people have this problem with condoms where it takes them out of the moment where they suddenly feel very unsexy, keep the sex going. Yes, kiss on him, touch on him. Don't kiss on him or touch on him in a way that interferes with him putting the condom on. Don't block his sight line to the condom if he needs to look. Don't get in the way of his arms and hands having free movement so that he can roll the condom onto himself and check and make sure it's 
properly rolled down with a little space at the tip to collect the semen, less likely to break then. But yeah, keep the heat going, keep the action going, and the condom will seem much less distracting, much less of a boner killing, you know, we've stopped having sex now so I can put the condom on and now we can continue having sex. You don't want it to feel like that. So yeah, if he's standing up and putting a condom down, and I say this not in any sort of sexist way because I think guys do this with guys too when they put on condoms. I know that they do because I've been there for it. If he's rolling the condom down his dick, there's nothing preventing you from being on the floor kneeling between his legs licking his balls in taint and reaching up and playing with his nipples. You can keep it going. You can keep him engaged sexually. You can keep the heat on and the anticipation of, Oh, I can't wait till this fucking condom is on because this is going to be awesome. Ah. But yeah, definitely kiss on and touch on. Don't treat breaking out the condom and rolling the condom on as an intermission. Because then guys are likelier, if they have a problem with condoms, to lose their erection, to be distracted by the condom and pulled out at the moment and deflated. Then you got to ramp them all the way back up. Also a good idea when you're using condoms, if you're going to put it on a little bit before penetration, and you should, not immediately before penetration, keep rolling around. Keep sucking dick even if the condom's on it. Keep uh, jacking and playing so that the condom is well integrated into his dick when it is time for penetration. So it's sort of forgotten about that it's there. So that his dick is then primed for and, and, and acclimated to the slightly different sensations that he will experience with the condom on. So there isn't this massive transition from foreplay and skin to skin and tongue to dick contact to penetration and suddenly latex. You want latex present for some time before penetration, but not enough time that you've degraded the latex in such a way that it's likely to break during intercourse. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old woman. I am married, and I have been with my husband for 24 years. When we first set it out, we would have off-the-wall sex, just amazingly great he was not very sexually experienced when we got together. He's very, very well endowed. Um, but just kind of like the past 10, 15 years or so, I don't know what sort of going on with him. He kind of had a little bit of a bout with depression. And our doctor said that he has some testosterone issues, um, dropping levels of testosterone. But he has this anxiety, I guess, about having sex with me now, and he is to a point where he's prudish, where he doesn't want to do anything, really, uh, and I'm kind of even uncomfortable discussing the fact that I masturbate when I get home from work before he's there. So, I mean, I love him, and I, I don't want to get divorced, but Hmm, I'm starting to wonder what other opportunities are there. I mean, I'm 50 and we've been together for a while, but I take care of myself. I'm athletic. I'm a long-distance runner. So I can easily pass for 30, uh, to be a 30-year-old, no problem. And, I, just, you know, I'd like to stay with him, but I feel like I'm being held hostage sexually. Joan Price is my go-to expert on 
Sex for the Senior set, and we're broadly defining senior there. She's the author of several books, including the new Ultimate Guide to Sex After 50, How to Maintain or Regain a Spicy, Satisfying Sex Life, and her award-winning Naked at Our Age, Talking Out Loud About Senior Sex. you got to read her blog, www.nakedatourage.com, where she talks senior sex and reviews sex toys from a senior perspective. Okay, Joan, how you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. So this woman's call, this, her question, her problem, she's in her 50s. She's been with her husband for almost half her life. Yeah. Uh, they had a great and rocking kick-ass sex life once upon a time. He's got a giant dick. He was super adventurous. But it sounds like whether it's depression, low testosterone, anxiety, whatever, he's done with sex and she's not. What do you tell someone in that situation? Well, she says they haven't had good sex for the past 15 years. 15 years, Dan. So <laughs> she says she, she feels like she's being held hostage sexually. Well, that's no way to live. So your advice uh, would be to get out? Well, first my advice would be <clears throat> to talk to his doctor. Because both depression and antidepressants can have sexual side effects, and they can be changed. They can be treated. But it doesn't sound like he's interested. sounds like he, he really is done. He, he went back to being prudish. He doesn't want to do anything anymore. So I'd say she should talk to his doctor first, maybe see a sex therapist to get at the real issues, because who knows why? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on for him? Might be medical, might not be. Might be something entirely different. But they're not talking, and if those two fail, I'd say she could get out. Because she, you know, she says she's athletic, could pass for 30. She doesn't say he's athletic, Mm -hmm. could pass for, I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But she's not happy. She she sounds ready to move on. She doesn't want to be divorced, but she didn't say, I don't want to be divorced from him. She said, I don't want to be divorced. Okay, so uh, what about my standard advice or the advice I frequently give in a situation like this, which is I just kind of throw up my hands and say, do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. If divorce isn't an option for economic reasons, for social reasons, uh, for religious reasons, and you're going to lose your mind if you don't get some sex, go get some sex and keep your mouth shut about it and come home to your loving partner and don't tell them. About. I don't know that the marriage is that good, despite the sex. She doesn't really indicate that. Mm-hmm. Well, no, but, but let's doesn't. let's game it out. Let's game it out. She didn't say okay, uh, you know it's it a loving in every way. But I I hear this frequently. So let's take this as a yeah. hypothetical. So I hear this frequently. It's a great relationship. I love him. We're great partners. We're great parents together. We have a great like social life, and I really love him and I care for him. Or and he's economically dependent on me, or I am on him, and I don't want to leave the marriage. But there's no sex. There hasn't been sex for years. Yeah. He doesn't want to have sex with me, and he doesn't want to let me have sex with anybody else. What do I do? And my answer sometimes in that case is do what you got to do. Yeah, and I would agree with you. Now, we don't know whether they've even ever brought this up because mm-hmm. she, she feels uncomfortable even telling him that she masturbates. So I doubt she said, I feel like I'm being held hostage sexually. I want to give me, give me a pass for doing what I have to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that could be her first step or her third step. After the doctor, the sex therapist, then she just can, has to tell him, you know, I can't go on like this. Is killing me. And if he says no, 
I want you to be as sexless as I am, then I'd say she does what she has to do. It might mean leaving the marriage. Right. Now, there might be a she's probably not happy in that marriage. She doesn't indicate she's happy. Oftentimes, though, people aren't happy in a marriage because they, there is no sex in their life. They get sex in yeah. their life even if they're getting it outside the marriage and they're much more content in the marriage because the marriage no longer means no sex forever. Well, I absolutely agree with you. If that's the case, then she does what she has to do. And, 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 I, well, and I agree with you yeah. that in the best you know, possible circumstances, it should be above board. It should be honest. Even if it's the honesty is around uh, you do what you need to do, I don't want to know about it. And so you're yes. doing it and there is some sneaking around, but it's, you know, with your partner's, you know, re- request that you kind of sneak around, that you kind of keep it from them so they can live, you know, in denial about the fact that you're fucking other people or other person, if that's one other person. So, so I agree with you, like, that's best, best, best to be honest, but some people are in circumstances, particular circumstances, yeah. and it's easy for people on the outside to say, you should always leave and integrity and you should always be honest and you should never deceive. It's easy for someone outside a marriage that can have become kind of a trap to say that to someone. And it's very easy in a sex-negative culture for people to say, well, you should just go without sex. Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. But realize there's one more thing. She's 50. That doesn't mean her life is over. That doesn't mean she couldn't start over again with someone else or with a bunch of other people who knows what she's ready for. Mm-hmm. So, so let's not assume that staying in the marriage is the only way for her. So I agree that life doesn't end at 50 and she can still start over and, and have new relationships and find a new partner, make a new commitment. But just the reality of it is, you know, we talk about these sorts of relationship conflicts, uh, you know, with a Panglossian vibe. Like in the best of all possible worlds, you can be perfectly honest. In the best of all possible worlds, it's easy to leave and start over. But not everybody lives in the best of all possible worlds where you can be honest with your partner or you can leave and start over. Some people are trapped. By circumstance, yeah. by affection, even I mean, my partner needs me. They're dependent on me emotionally, financially, whatever, Lee, and I can't go. But I can't stay if I'm not having some sort of sex in my life. So I'm going to go get the sex in my life and stay. And there are circumstances, and we rarely acknowledge this. I think the professional advice industrial complex rarely acknowledges this. There are circumstances where cheating is the least worst option. And that's true. I agree with you. We don't disagree about anything here. (laughs) And we definitely agree that she needs some sex in her life. She does. And she shouldn't feel guilty about masturbating. And she shouldn't hide that from your partner. You shouldn't have to hide the fact that you masturbate from your spouse. Absolutely not. You should masturbate on top of your spouse. (laughs) Can we keep you for one more question? Absolutely. I'd love to. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old woman living in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm calling with an etiquette question. About two months ago, my father-in-law, who was in his 80s, fell and broke his neck. He lived in Georgia at the time. And unfortunately for him, his wife had also recently died in August. We decided that the best course of action was to have my father-in-law move in with us. And so two weeks ago, he made that trek with me from Georgia and has since moved in with us in our home in Salt Lake City. While this presents obvious challenges, such as my husband and I being moved to the basement to accommodate him, one challenge that we didn't anticipate was that my father-in-law is a fan of porn. Specifically, the last week or so, I've come home late at night from studying or come upstairs to get a glass of water and have found my father-in-law actively engaged in watching porn. This wouldn't be so problematic except that he's doing this in our living room and we have a four-year-old child. 
And as much as I want to be sex positive and not shame him, I also don't want my son's first memory to be of grandpa watching lesbians 69. So here's my question. In a way that isn't going to be sex shaming, I'd like to address this with my father-in-law and perhaps recognize that there are some social behavioral elements here that are necessary for him. He's undergone a lot of change. He's unable to drive. He's lost his home. He's moved into a new home far away from where he was, and his wife has recently passed away. If this is something that he needs to feel normal, I don't want to take that away. But at the same time, he's also spent $300 on 13 separate videos in our direct TV over the last week. So I'm curious what your take is on this. How do I get my father-in-law to watch porn appropriately, knowing that he can't operate a computer? And what is, for the elderly, a reasonable amount of porn to watch? Well, this just screams mental health checkup. <laughs> Does it not? You know, I, for her or for him? For him. Oh, okay. Because well, I have a different take on it. Oh, what is your take? Well, look. Look at his situation. Poor guy. He's in his 80s. He lost his wife recently. Then he fell down and he broke his neck. Then he was forced to move to a different state. He has none of, nothing that he's familiar with anymore. He's all alone except he's with his uh, daughter-in-law. And we assume there's a husband. I don't know. I don't, he, yeah, there is. There's a husband. She, there's yeah. a husband. And, and a four-year-old. And if porn will make him feel better, normalize his life, get him back in touch with something that gives him joy and pleasure, I think she, he should be able to do it. I, I, com- I completely agree with okay. you, except for in the living room in front of a four-year-old and no, spending three, $300 on 13 separate videos because he doesn't know about all the free porn churning on the internet, that he doesn't have to bankrupt the, you know, the son and daughter-in-law that took him in Tearing he through all the very expensive computer. He, but he cannot operate a remote on a television. I think yeah, it's not that he can't operate a computer; it's that he's unfamiliar with computers, and someone needs to familiarize okay. him with computers. But let's talk about this four-year-old for a second. He's watching porn late at night. She's worried that the four-year-old will get up and catch him, and then will be permanently scarred by seeing him watching lesbian porn. It he's would scar not, me. It would scar me, Joan. It would scar me. Babysitting. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think, and, and she says that she's, the time she's seen him is either she comes home late at night after studying, or she gets up at night to get a glass of water. It isn't that he's watching porn through the day. He waits, I don't know, I mean, mental health checkup is always a good idea, but I think she's, she says she doesn't want to shame him or blame him, but I think she is. Okay, I really well, sympathize with him. Maybe, maybe I misunderstood uh, the call because my impression was that there was concerns about him watching porn when the four-year-old was up and up and around the house and in and out of the living room and he was watching porn at those times. If he's watching porn at those times, if he's disinhibited in that way, if he's lost any sort of sense of propriety around porn consumption in front of children, then there might be some mental health issues that need to be yeah. addressed. If, on the other hand, he's doing it as best he can, when he can, in the middle of the night, when he's alone in what is his room, ostensibly, or in the living room, a shared space. It's in the living room. He needs to – she needs to talk to him about how to use a computer, how to watch porn, how to find porn for free. She can't have him in, what, two weeks he's lived there? He spent $300 on lesbian porn on the television set? 
<laughs> yeah, now that's a problem. But I think that the, the first solution is to get him his own television in his own bedroom. And a computer. So he doesn't have to be watching it in the living room. And I mean, get him a computer. Like, and get him a computer and sit with him and show him Tumblr and how it works. Well, and show him how to, or she can hook up his um, computer to the TV so that he just has to hit a couple of keys. He can learn to do that. Um, if he can't, maybe it's more of a problem, but we don't know that. We know he can't drive. We know he can't operate a computer for some reason. Mm-hmm. But, the, I mean, he does manage to wait till late at night to turn the television on and then to order the, the porn. And if he so can do he, that, if he can yeah. navigate around with a remote control to get to the porn on the television and order it and pay for it or accept the charges, he can navigate around on a computer screen. He can press yeah. the same sorts of buttons on a computer screen. Someone just needs to get him computer savvy, and it's going to have to call her. Hello, caller. It's going to have to be you. I'm just thinking that because her her shaming is going to show if she tries to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it shows through the through the phone message. So if if she doesn't even realize she's shaming, but she sounds shaming. She thinks her four year old would be scarred if he got up at night and, and found that Grandpa was watching a film where women go down on each other. Oh, and she says, "How much porn is too much for the elderly?" That is a weird way of putting it. That is a weird way of saying it. Now, mm, I mean, I felt that one. My hair stood up with that one. It was a very Utah so, question. I have to say. <laughs> and yeah. Utah, Utah, Salt Lake City, where they live, Utah, highest porn consumption rates in the country, and it's not all grandpas out of control who are watching the porn. <laughs> and even if it were, that wouldn't be a problem. I mean, <laughs> grandpa's out of he's doing he's doing something very safe. He's not hiring. You know, he's not. Spending three hundred dollars a night on, on having someone come to the house, right? Not yet. Just trying to watch. Just, well, okay. I mean, if he gets, if they let him get away with running up bills for porn like this, he's going to think he can get away with anything. Where he's not going to realize that this is a problem, spending their money at this clip. So l- let's quickly summarize for her. Our advice is: you are shaming him. Stop shaming him. He can watch get him as his much own television. Get him his own television. Put it in his room. He can watch as much porn as he likes. Have a have an adult conversation with this adult about the fact that you know you worry about the four year old in the house and hear what he has to say. Like, oh, I always turn the TV so it's facing into the room, and so if somebody walks in the room, they can't see it or whatever. Like, what's his mm-hmm. plan for privacy if he watches in the living room? And get him a computer. Show him the internet. Yeah, and there are some computers that are even specially made for people who may have visual problems. We don't know if he does, but in his 80s, he might. So he can learn to use a computer. He can learn to order his own porn and pay for it. You know, that's the other thing. It, does he have means? We don't know that. And I mean, he maybe may, she can get and, a hook him up with his, own, with his own account. And he may be so naive as to not realize when he's clicking yes that there says yes to charges for the porn. Yeah. He may not realize the bill he's running up and you need to talk to him about that. Adult to adult. Porn-consuming adult to porn-consuming adult, theoretically. Yeah. If, like most people in Utah, caller, you are watching lots of porn, just like your father-in-law. But as far as the answer to the question, how much porn is too much for the elderly? Huh? The elderly? <laughs> Let's let him have as much porn as he wants. They have a lot of time on Enable him to do it privately. I completely agree. Before we let you go, you review sex toys uh, at your blog, nakedatourage.com, from the senior perspective. But I, I think do. most sex toys are generally and broadly applicable to all. So give us a couple of sex toy recommendations from stuff you've tried out. 
Well, that's, let me give you some of my, you know, why, what the criteria are for being right for my age group. I'm 71, and I review sex toys from a senior perspective, as you said, that they need to be <clears throat> strong enough because we need a lot more sensation. They need to be easy to use with lubed fingers because we need a lot of your lubricant. For many of us, if they're insertable, they need to be slender. We're not size queens when it comes to our age with our thinning vaginal tissues. Also, we need to be able to run it for long enough without it, oh, catching on fire or overheating (laughs) or losing its charge. And it would be lovely if the controls were easy enough to see so that we could use them without putting our reading glasses on, because that is a buzzkill. Oh, no, I meant to turn it up, and I turned it off. hate it when that happens. So, literally a buzzkill. Uh-huh, a total buzzkill, literally. So I have, um, there are a lot of toys that I love, and there are some that I don't love, but I review them anyway because someone might, and there are a few that I don't think anyone would love. Well, name a couple so, names. Give us a couple of recommendations. Okay, like. some great ones, some great ones. The new Magic Wand Rechargeable. We no longer need to get tangled in the cords to use our Magic Wand. Woohoo! And that's a powerful uh, one. That, it that is one powerful. is intense. That's it the is almost, I thought it was the king of vibrators until I tried the Sibian. The Sibian? The, uh, have you tried the Sibian? No, I have not. No, I think you might be just want to take a look at it. The Sibian is, an, is a creature. <laughs> it is a huge thing that you actually ride. Wow. Or that rides you. I know. And it has vibrations that are way more powerful than the magic wand. It also is very noisy and big and takes a learning curve to use. It isn't something that you just plug in and go. You need to uh, work with it. It's expensive. It is just absolutely amazing. When nothing else gives enough to sensation, the Sibian will. S-Y-B-I-A-N. They're all reviewed on nakedatourage.com. For guys, um, there's a wonderful penis vibrator um, called the, um, the Pulse, and what is from Hot Octopus. And what's great about that is that it can be used with a flaccid penis. You don't have to have an erection to use it. It has flaps that open up, place the penis in it, close the flaps up, and let it go. It can give penises an erection when it doesn't happen naturally. It can also, of course, give wonderful orgasms. Even in the absence of an erection. Some people don't know this. Some people think, if I can't get hard, I can never come again. But there are people uh, through age or... uh, infirmity, prostate surgery, who can't get hard but can still climax. It just yes. You just have to get used to the idea of stimulating a flaccid penis, but it is possible. It is a doable thing, and it's not a difficult thing to do. But last question, Joan. How many sex toys are too many sex toys for the elderly? <laughs> at, at what point do we have to cut you off, like we have to cut Grandpa off from the porn? Uh, well, <laughs> I'd say personally, cut me off when I have no more shelves or drawers or hiding places or closets, and they're all over the floor of the counter. When, when you become a sex toy hoarder, that, that's it. That's when you've gone too far. But up to that I don't moment, know. You can be a sex toy hoarder. Just be sure there's a place to put them away. 
Joan Price, she is an author and expert on senior sex, and you should check out her new book, Ultimate Guide to Sex After 50, How to Maintain or Regain a Spicy, Satisfying Sex Life, and read her blog where you can read her reviews of these sex toys and others at nakedatourage.com. Joan, that was great. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old bisexual woman in New York and I'm a big fan of the show. I'm calling about an incident that happened last week when I was on a week-long rafting trip in the Grand Canyon with my dad and my brother. Uh, I was really attracted to one of our guides who's 29. Um, and on the second night, we stayed up late playing bocce on the beach after everyone had gone to bed. My dad knew we were playing bocce and he played for a while with us too before he also went to bed. Uh, the guide and I ended up hooking up after playing bocce for a while. We hooked up on the beach a little bit removed from where all the people on the trip were camping. After we were done hooking up, I went back to my family's campsite and saw my dad was still awake. He said that he had woken up in the middle of the night and saw that I wasn't in my cot, so he came to check on me and ended up seeing me giving the guy a blowjob. I apologized that he had to see that and assured him that it was totally consensual. Long story short, my dad ended up yelling at the guy the next day and asking for a trip refund since the image of me and this guy supposedly ruined his entire trip, and he was not going to be able to enjoy himself after seeing that. He said that if the guide didn't repay him personally for the trip, he would come after the company and get the guide fired, which would ruin the guide's career. His rationale for asking for the money is that the company should have a code of ethics that forbids guides from hooking up with customers, and the guide failed to follow ethical standards. My argument is that the only harm that was done was that my dad now has to confront the fact that his 26-year-old daughter is a sexually active adult who makes her own choices. And I don't think the guide should have to face financial consequences or a, career, a ruined career because we made a poor choice of location for our actions. So what are your thoughts? Was my dad overreacting and asking for thousands of dollars to be refunded just because his daughter and the guide hooked up? Or do you think he's being fair? Your dad is being a complete and total asshole. And... If I were those guys and if I were you, I would present a united front. And if I were those guys, I would also go and talk to my employer immediately about this so that dad could go after the company and the company could tell your dad to fuck off because you are an adult. The guide is an adult. This isn't a power imbalance relationship. It's not a professor who's 29 and a grad student who's 26. It's two adults who met on a vacation. One was – working, one was vacating, and you guys had a completely consensual and sounds like a wonderful and joyful short-term relationship. Wonderful, lovely encounter. If your dad was traumatized by what he saw, that's really his problem. Your 26-year-old adult woman, you know, when you don't come home at night, wherever it is that you live, your dad doesn't go out to check on you. I think dad suspected something might be happening between you and the guide and he didn't like it and he went out looking for evidence of what he didn't want to see and saw it and it's his fucking problem. But rather than be mad at you, which he knows isn't going to fly and could potentially fuck up your relationship with him or his with you going forward and you guys are stuck with each other for the next 50 years, he is going after this, this boy, this man whose dick you sucked. You need to tell your dad to knock it the fuck off. You need to tell your dad that if he blackmails these guys into giving him all of this money because you had a consensual sexual encounter, you will keep track of where those guys are. And when dad dies and you get your inheritance, you are going to pay them back that money. Or if you have the means, you're going to pay them back that money now. Because these guys, guys who are working as 
guides in the Grand Canyon for people on vacation, they don't have thousands of dollars to spare. They're probably making just enough to cover their expenses and scrape along and enjoy life. What a wonderful life getting to take people through the Grand Canyon and what a wonder, you know, to constantly be on vacation and occasionally get a blowjob from a hot 26 year old bi girl. Sounds like a great life, but it's not lawyer, doctor, Wall Street money. So this is really going to hurt them if indeed they are afraid of being fired by their employers for this consensual encounter. Come to their defense. Your dad is being an asshole. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight female in a western city, and I have a question about the line between none of my business and shitty enabler. My 32-year-old friend has bipolar disorder. She's also super hypersexual, which wouldn't be a problem, except that she's reckless and also married with two young kids. She's cheating on her husband a lot. Supposedly, he knows about some of it, although this is all coming from her, so I don't know for sure. I do know he doesn't know about some of the more recent stuff. I've only known her for about a year, and when she told me about the affairs, it was part of the same conversation in which she told me she was separating from her husband. She moved out and got her own apartment. He stayed in their house with their kids. She still saw him and their kids all the time. Her husband is a really nice guy, and quite frankly, everything she did sounds super shitty, but considering she has a mental illness that affects impulse control, it's hard to distinguish what she's really in control of. I told her I hope that she would never promise anyone monogamy again and that her husband would be okay and find someone really great. Since she moved out in February, she's basically stuffed her way through Tinder, which, again, wouldn't be fine, except that she's not on birth control, and I'm pretty sure never uses condoms. I also thought that her husband was at least semi-aware of what she was doing, but now I kind of doubt it. Um, up until now, I've lectured her about condoms and birth control, but otherwise taking a very none-of-my-business approach. She knows my opinion, and we've left it at that. But now, she's pregnant, and there is no fucking way to know who the father is, and it doesn't help that she primarily sleeps with 19- or 22-year-olds. And her plan is to tell everyone, including her husband, that the baby is his, and she'll move back into their house, and they'll be together, and they'll raise the kid like their third child. And I feel conflicted about this, because her husband is a good person, and she's kind of treated him like garbage. And to me, this just seems like the final blow. She's going to lie to him and manipulate him into getting back together just with over as a kid that's not his. I mean, probably not his. I think it's possibly. But she'll inevitably go back to cheating on him with a million other guys and keep putting it at risk for STIs and whatever else. I feel like that's bad. Um, it's not that I want to tell her husband what's up. That isn't my place. But should I still be this person's friend? She knows I don't like the situation, but I haven't told her exactly how shitty I think she is for doing this. Should I? I don't know if I should shame her for being an asshole, keep my mouth closed and just be loving and supportive. Or just go quietly away out of her life. We've heard from people and heard about people and gotten questions from the spouses of people who are engaging in the exact same behaviors that your friend is engaging in. Perhaps there's an aspect to it. Perhaps it is the bipolar disorder that is, you know, destroying her impulse control and is directly causative in this behavior pattern with her. But there are people doing engaging in the exact same behaviors where there is no bipolar disorder. There's no mental illness. There is just hunger for cock or pussy, right? So we can address this without even talking about her mental illness. Should you still be this person's friend? No. No, I wouldn't personally be this person's friend. Looking at how this person is treating her husband, looking at how this person treats her children, looking at how this person treats her future biological child that she intends to deceive as well about their origin and their parentage. I wouldn't feel comfortable being this person's friend. If she treats her children and her spouse in this way, is she going to treat her 
friends any better? And really, do you if, even if she was going to treat you better, if she's a better friend than she is, do you really want to reward someone with your friendship, which has value, who is such a shitty, terrible, awful person and tells you about it and expects your support, compassion, understanding for this deeply shitty, awful behavior? You know who deserves your support, compassion, understanding? Her husband. And here's why you don't want to be friends with someone like this. You know, someone who is lying and deceitful and really abusing the love and trust of her spouse and the love and affection of her children who discloses all of this to a friend who, 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 who brags about it. And the friend sort of smiles and laughs it off. What she's getting from that interaction with you is the impression that it's not a big deal. She's getting from you. She's asking, demanding from you license. That's what she's getting in the end. When, if she has relationships with people where she tells them about all the shitty things she's doing and she gets them to sort of either approve or not actively disapprove, which then she construes as approval, she can then turn around and tell herself what I'm doing isn't that bad. Because it was really that bad, the friends that I'm disclosing this to, that I'm bragging to about all the crazy things I'm doing, would confront me, would tell me. She's externalizing what should be an internal mental process, which is, am I being an asshole or not? And she's telling you about all this awful shit she's doing, and you're not looking at her a year into your friendship and saying, you're being an asshole. And she's then turning around and telling herself, I guess I'm not being an asshole. I guess this isn't that bad in the grand scheme of things, and I can keep doing all of this. I can't tell my husband these things because that's totally right. I don't know how he'd react. And if he thought it was awful, then you know cons the consequences could be severe. So I'm going to tell some of my friends all these things and see what they think. And, oh, they're okay with it or they're not telling me I'm an asshole. So I'm, I'm good. I'm in the clear. Not that bad. You don't want to play that role in her. You don't want to be manipulated into playing that role in her life. If I were in your shoes, I would tell her husband what I know. I would – looking at this relationship of just a year, think, eh, this does not have much value. The information I have has tremendous value potentially to this man who deserves to know what's about to be done to him by his wife. I would, if I were in your shoes, go to him, or if you can't do that, write a long letter and send it to him anonymously explaining everything that you know so that he can then make an informed decision about whether he wants to remain with his wife. And perhaps he does. Perhaps she's worth it. Perhaps he doesn't mind. Perhaps he's got a low or no sexual libido and he doesn't care what she does with whomever. And he'll stay and raise the third child. And he doesn't give a shit if it's biologically his or not. And perhaps he can talk her into getting an abortion. If he, indeed he is unwilling to help her raise this child. So tell them what you know and back away from this woman. You do not need someone like this in your life. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old bisexual woman, and I've been dating casually for the past few months. I've been seeing this one girl who's about my age, and um, we've seen each other maybe three times now sort of a friends with benefits situation. Uh, we had plans this weekend that we made a week ago to go to an event together. And the night before, really late, around three in the morning, 
she texted me that she was feeling really ill and had a migraine and couldn't come. And um, it sounded like an excuse to me, but I was like, oh, okay, I hope you feel better. The next day I saw her Instagram. She had posted a photo of that event. So it looks like she went without me and lied to me. Um, and I'm kind of torn. I don't know if I should be upset by this, if this was a deal breaker or if it's just kind of a white lie and she had other reasons for not wanting to go with me. I mean, we're not in anything committed, so I can understand if something came up and she wanted to give me a white lie. I don't know. I can't decide how I feel about this. I love your thoughts. Thanks. If you're three dates in and she is canceling on you and lying to you to get out of plans that she made to you, not because she doesn't want to do whatever it is you guys were planning on doing together. She does want to do it. She just doesn't want to do it with you. Then it's over. That is a breakup. That is a coward's breakup. She's ended the relationship. She will continue to, if you pursue her, if you pretend not to have noticed the pictures in her Instagram feed, God bless social media, she will continue perhaps to make plans with you for a while to shine you on. This is the beginning of the fadeaway. She's just going to gradually disengage. You know this because you have magic powers that people didn't have 25 years ago. You can find the proof via social media that she was lying to you. Well, all right. Now that spares you from having to make additional plans with her in the future that she will cancel on or back out of and then have to add all that up and conclude that she's really not interested in continuing to see you. Now you know all at once because of this one act, this one event, and the social media that she's not interested in you. So stop calling her, stop thinking about her, look around, get on lesbian Tinder if there is such a thing yourself, or buy lady Tinder if there is such a thing yourself, and find somebody else. Is it awful what she did? Yeah, but it's common. And I bet if you look back through your life, you've done something similar to someone else where you didn't want to hurt their feelings. You'd made plans. They were more interested in you perhaps than you were in them. And rather than just come out and say what can seem really harsh, like, look, it was nice. The three dates were nice, but I'm not interested. You weaseled out of it. You tiptoed away. You didn't say, you know, you weren't direct. And you faded away yourself. So you can be angry at her a little bit for lying to you. But the lie she told you, you know, dumping you before this date, essentially is what she did, is a really, really common one. And almost everyone who's angry about this lie being told to them, when you sit down and talk to them about it, it doesn't take long to discover that they have told similar or the exact same lies to others. Hi, Dad. I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am calling about episode 455 and the guy who called in to get advice about whether or not to confront somebody who had creeped out his friend. And I just wanted to say thank you to that dude because he's killing it. And I feel like his friend's really lucky to have someone like that. He sounds like a great ally. I feel like he handled the situation really well. It was helpful. It was in a de-escalating kind of way. And we need more guys like that to get on board and say something when someone's being creepy, because I think something that men may not realize is how scary it is for a girl sometimes to turn someone down. As lady humans, we're anticipating sometimes hostility, and uh, it can be really scary. A couple months ago, I was at a pub, and this dude was really coming up on me and touching me, and I had gently asked him to kind of leave me alone for a bit, and I kept moving, and he kept following me. 
and I was with a couple guy friends, and they were laughing. They thought it was kind of funny. They were joking around about it. And honestly, I feel like they didn't read how much this guy was making me feel uncomfortable. And when I had said no, thank you to him, he kind of disrespected that. And that's how I felt. You know, he didn't regard my no as valid. And it would have been nice if one of my guy friends had come over and in a helpful way just said, like, hey, buddy, like, you're kind of being a creeper. Maybe step off a little bit because it's kind of making everyone uncomfortable. Not in a, like, I wouldn't have wanted to fight this or anything, but just as a way to say, like, hey, buddy, let's have a chat for a second. Like, there's something that you don't realize you might be coming off as, but it's kind of kind of putting everybody down. Anyway, I just want to say, dudes of the world, take note. This is exactly the kind of guy we want to hang around with and be around, and we need allies like this dude. So virtual high five to you. That was really cool. And, uh, yeah, good luck with the whole situation, and thanks a lot. And we're going to leave it there. The deadline for submissions to HumpFest 2015 approaches. It's in late September. For information about making and submitting a short five-minute or less amateur porn film for my big annual porn film festival, go to HumpFest.com and click on Submissions. All right, 206-201-2720. What is that? That is the number that you call to leave a question or a comment for a future show. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow HumpFest on Twitter at HumpFest. And follow Joan Price, this week's guest, on Twitter at Joan Price. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Petunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.